I'd like to welcome all of our listeners to another episode of the London Lyceum. We're a podcast that's devoted to thinking, but we don't want to just think in general. We want to think well. And so in an effort to do that, we've taken some things from James 3, as well as our own confessional commitments, and tried to create something of an intellectual culture that can produce these types of virtues that we see there. So we, we want to create something that is encouraging charity, curiosity, critical thinking, and cheerful confessionalism. And I'm on your host, Jordan Stefaniak. Brandon's not with us today, uh, but this is our, our monthly episode of the Hanover House. So we have three other guests with us. We have Connor McMakin, Cody Float, and we're Jake Stone, who's back on the podcast after a, a brief season away from us. So I'm looking forward to having a discussion today. We are going to discuss primarily medieval theology. So we recently had an episode with Dr. David Hogg talking about Anselm and medieval theology in general. We've had some other guests who've been specialists in medieval theology. I think of Richard Cross. He talked more Reformation debates there, but he's a medieval specialist. We've got a couple medieval episodes coming up. And I think this is just, it's an interesting topic. It's a fun topic that might uh, create some more discussion on what is the role of medieval theology as well as other older theology in in the life of the local church. I, I see in evangelicalism a beginning of a retrieval and resourcement movement or an interest at least in medieval theology, seeing there's, that there's value there. I think when I grew up, medieval theology was mostly made fun of. Well, they asked stupid questions like how many angels can dance on the head of a pin, which when you actually get into the context, you find out that's a very important question. While it may sound fruitless, it's actually important. But we've kind of moved past the caricatures, I think. We're beginning to want to use that. So I want to just talk a little bit about what that might look like in the life of the church, how that might impact us. So I guess we can just get started with, I don't know who, who wants to start. Just talk to me a little bit about your own experience with medieval theology. Have you seen that in any of the local churches you've been members of? Um, or has that been completely non-existent from, from where you've been? I would say by and large, uh, medieval theology or even patristic theology as well, because um, that ties in a bit, has been completely ignored in churches and even um, seminary, like my seminary experience by and large. Um, We weren't reading, like at least in seminary, we weren't reading medieval theologians really at all, aside from kind of like brief articles and historical theology saying so-and-so believed this, but you never actually read the primary literature. Um, That was pretty much my whole MDiv experience. And then growing up, in local churches, being a part of local churches, even up till now, um, I've never heard medieval theologians quoted from the pulpit, talked about, engaged with in any <clears throat> meaningful way, apart from um, maybe jabbing at Aquinas because he was Catholic or some like, <laughs> you know, some kind of like petty joke. Uh, so I would say... Yeah, by and large, until I actually started reading primary literature and kind of engaging with this retrieval that we're seeing going on in evangelical circles of medieval theology, I had just no conception for what it was, um, aside from characters that, you know, kind of we addressed already. Yeah, Jake, have you had any experience of medieval theology in your own context? A local church, I mean. Well, I, I grew up in the, an atmosphere where we held to the trail of blood view on church history. So obviously the medieval period, along with everything else, was wrong, and we were the underground true church. Um, so uh, no, nothing positive was shared about anybody that was not a Baptist. So to answer your question, no, nobody ever talked about um, I didn't know about Martin Luther or John Calvin until I was in a high school European history class. Of course, I was prepared, though, to know that they were wrong because we were Baptists, not Protestants. Um, so, but so, but unfortunately, no, I, I uh, was not ex- in any way exposed to that. In fact, really, the only thing that I would have just, even in just history classes, really, I mean, the the 
medieval period was just always characterized as the Dark Ages. And so you always really got this kind of impression that really for almost a thousand years, um, that there was nothing instructive or good that really came out of this period. It was a lot of plague. It was a lot of disease and it was a lot of superstition. And, um, and I think your episode on Anselm and just listening to that really kind of, I liked how Dr. Hall talked about one part. He just, um, made kind of, it was, I found it funny talking about just history, you know, it was, it was good. And then we went into the darkness and things got a little better reformation and the enlightenment destroyed everything. And we haven't recovered yet. And I think some, while, while that's a little humorous, the way he put it, I actually think, though, and it's a caricature of history, but I actually think in a lot of ways, that's how a lot of Christians actually can view church history um, is that way, whether we realize it or not. And so just for me personally, you know, it's been a learning experience just reading early church fathers, patristics, and even now moving into this kind of area of the medieval period of seeing what great truths can be gleaned from that period. And um, and I think it helps us. I think that's I think there is a truth. I know I'm kind of poke, uh, poke fun of my my heritage there, of what I grew up in. But I do think there was a lot of challenges because it is hard to really reckon with. How do I understand the history of the Christian faith and church history? If you do have that view of, of Baptist roots in that way, it's almost like you're on a very small island and you can't say that we do have a connection with this heritage whether it's the patristics or whether it's the medieval period. That's good. Connor, you're our last hope. Did you have any positive experience whatsoever with the medieval church growing up in your own church context? No, uh, sorry um, to burst the hope there. But um, I think even like I, maybe I wasn't paying attention, uh, but even in seminary, I think my, my recollection of church history was the patristics and then the Reformation. Um, and, I mean, it's not necessarily like a knock on where I went to school. There's a lot of history to to teach in very little hours that they, you know, can squeeze into your degree, um, even at the MDiv level. So it's not like a negative shot at that, but it's just there. Yeah, there's very little discussion. I mean, yeah, I think we talked about Aquinas there for, for a hot minute, but, um, yeah, it just seems like, as Jake said, there's a thousand years that we just kind of, yeah, some stuff happened. Uh, Roman Catholicism got weird and now we're going to talk about the Reformation and how they fixed that, you know, so to speak. Um, and, uh, yeah, I mean, I, 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 I remember reading, um, which Ortland was it? Gavin, uh, his book that came out last year, the year before, well, I don't even know what year we're in now, uh, but um, um, yeah, he, he kind of talks about that. How um, it is good, and I think he's right to hey let let's let's make sure our our Christian tradition doesn't forget you know a vast majority of of, of a of a period of time that um, for some reason we just kind of focused on um, kind of the two bookends of church history. It seems like and. Yeah, there's a lot to benefit. There's a there's a there's a there's a well that uh, can be um, that can be. Uh, what do you do in a well? Do you do you dip into a well? Do you draw it? Thank you. Yeah. So there there's uh, my lack of knowledge there um, being highlighted. But you, you get what I'm saying. Yeah. There's there's gold in those hills, so to speak, that need to be mined. I got that one right. Yeah, dip dip is what we do as Baptists. We dip people. We immerse them. We are dippers. Correct. Are you drinking a diet, Dr. Pepper, Jake? That's right. How dare you? That way that I can eat chocolate in the same time. One cancels one cancels out the other. Hey, that's what that was the instruction I heard from preachers at the potlucks. So right. you drink all the diet coke you you drink all the Diet Coke you want, and you can eat all the chocolate cake you want. Would you say that medieval theology is the Diet Coke of evangelicalism? I have no idea even what that means. <laughs> <laughs> so, so to continue to think about medieval theology rather than Dr. Pepper, which I, I think we all agree Dr. Pepper is the, the superior beverage, 
um, of soft drinks. Let's, we'll go that way. Medieval theology, I think none of us really experienced it within our local church context. Uh, seminary training, Connor, you mentioned you didn't really, it would kind of, I guess it went patristics and then reformation for the most part with a brief segment on Thomas Aquinas that, Hey, this guy existed. He's important. Uh, move on now. I think that was pretty much my experience too. Uh, church history one is supposed to cover from, you know, beginning of the church to reformation essentially. And you spend the vast majority of your time discussing the Christological debates and such that go on in the patristic period, which is not a problem at all. I think uh, the reality is that I had two church history course requirements, and I think that needs to be three, because I don't know how you do justice to the patristic period and the medieval period in one course. I think that's probably the primary problem there, rather than a lack of care. It's a poor formatting. And seminaries have simply, or at least Protestant seminaries, have neglected this period to their own detriment. I think if you talk to probably most philosophers, they're probably more in tune with medieval period just because there are so many interesting philosophical debates that go on there. And they probably recognize the value a little bit more. And that's probably why if you look, I think, on medieval resources, they're probably either Catholics who are writing these or Protestant philosophers who are trying to engage and grapple with whether it's Aquinas or Scotus or Occam or somebody, or Abelard, somebody from that period. So I think David Hogg coming on and talking, he's he's somewhat of an anomaly in evangelical life of a theologian who or a historian who is Protestant, evangelical, and a medievalist. There's just not many of those. So I, I do hope those who are listening, if you have hopes of academic career interests and, and journeys, I think that's an area that is sorely needed in our segment uh, of ecclesiastical life is more medievalists. But I, I, I'm also curious, you know, we asked Hogg a little bit about, you know, that type of the academic track. So if you want to know more about that, think about that, go listen to that. I'm, I'm a little bit interested in what that looks like in the life of the church. Dr. Hogg, he, he gestured at this a little bit. He had an illustration about, uh, I guess, grandparents, where there's almost like, why do you value it? Well, it's because, you know, you value the people who come before you who've really been part of your own lineage, which that there are family members, and you don't want to neglect your family members. But how do we practically do that in the life of the church? I I think for me, maybe it's just simply starting with, you know, if you have some sort of book club already, well, it seems it's a pretty easy, I'm just going to slip in some medieval theology, whether it's something like Evan Ortland's book that you mentioned, Connor, or whether it's slipping in some Anselm, or, or somebody who's fairly readable. I think if you read the beginning of Thomas Aquinas' Summa, that you'd find that quite readable, quite engaging. I think most people could handle that. Uh, a layperson could handle the first 13 questions. You can get it from Hackett for like $12. Very affordable, uh, very accessible. I think that might be a place to start. But do you guys have any thoughts on what that would look like? Uh, maybe we start with Reverend Connor or or we could start with somebody else. It, he's, he needs a Snickers. <laughs> Cody, you got something? Yeah, I think, um, like you said, I, you could do book studies. I don't even think you have to initially do that. You can just slip in um, what amounts to medical theology, just like in your teaching, right? In your discipleship with other believers. You can talk about these categories that we have from the medievals, whether that be doctrine of God, biblical interpretation, any of those kinds of issues, just slipping those things in in conversation so that when you do eventually get to that explicit, this is what the this is what medieval theologians taught, people already kind of have some conceptual categories for which to think about that. <clears throat> um, it could look like as pastors or teachers just like in you know intentionally quoting from the media from the medievals in a context that's not just kind of polemical and saying this is why you know as i often hear in, in kind of in my context you know people like 
the patristics were right, at least on like Trinity or Christology, you know, we don't really talk about the other stuff they had, you know, we just kind of ignore all that. <laughs> but um, then we just jump over the medievals like we've talked about. And so I think because that's so often the context we're saturated in within our own local churches, it would be helpful for pastors and teachers to kind of introduce medieval theology in a positive way, not merely just a polemical way, um, and do it in a way that's really, uh, in a sense, edible. You know, so not starting with the deepest questions that Aquinas has to offer, but kind of some like introductory concepts, um, whether it be something like, what does it mean for God to be pure act? Right. Uh, even though that can get pretty deep pretty fast, but, uh, you know, like kind of beginning to, yeah, just use elementary introductory concepts in everyday discipleship conversations in sermons and lessons, whatever, um, that then allow for you to do things like book studies or what have you. And people haven't already have an understanding of kind of what these things are getting at. It's good to know that Cody's elementary principles are pure act. So <laughs> not what I was trying to say, but keep this elementary, you know, <laughs> hard time. Uh, Connor, are you, are you officially prepared to answer the question? Yeah, I, I don't know if I would add, I mean, Cody answered it pretty well. I, I, I think I would just also say, don't be afraid to challenge your people with new things. You know, I, I think we get in a groove and we have our sources and we have our studies and we've got all these great organizations, TGC, you know, uh, T4G, and all, you know, they're, they're always giving us new stuff and, and all these publishers and, and everything. But, um, you know, every once in a while, as Cody said, let, let's go through uh, the these, these different uh, studies of, 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 you know, Aquinas or whoever it might be um, to uh, just kind of walk through their, their basic um, teachings and, and what they, what they brought, what they provided, uh, to the, the church throughout history and, and kind of how we still, I think it's really good if we can ask, okay, how is our thinking about certain things still affected by what happened in this period that we don't address enough? Um, if that makes sense, but, uh, yeah. And, and I, I agree with Cody. I mean, I often quote, um, other theologians, from from every period in my sermons, not because I I'm not an, an I can't find an original thought, uh, but some of it is practical. Some of it is strategic to point the congregation to these men or women who have who have provided um, helpful uh, contributions. And I might even say in a I know I've, I have in a sermon before. This is uh, what such and such thinks on this topic. Read everything that he's ever written on the subject. Like I'll even say that from the pulpit. And I don't think that's distracting. I don't think that's um, an inappropriate place to do that. Um, also just give books away. I think it, it's a, that's a good ministry just to, you know, have a, have a budget in that just to make sure you're giving good books away to people who would, would find it beneficial. But I don't know. It's a, a lot of, a lot, a lot to say very little, but, just jumping on what what Cody no that said. that's good so I, I want to ask you guys medieval theology w- since you didn't weren't trained in it previously whether in the church or in an educational context to a significant extent where have you found personally right now the best resources on medieval theology or you're still saying I'm curious about all this and I don't really know where to go I, I would say that's exactly where I am. Um, I mean, this is not, you know, this is not my area of expertise by any means. And so I, I really feel, you know, that's why for me, the, 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 the episode on Anselm was so helpful is because, you know, apart from, I would say, our, our caricatures that are presented at times of these people from this period, you know, listening to something like that is very helpful. You know, I'm, I'm thinking back to, um, I did a church history Wednesday night series several years back, and I can't even remember the resource that I used, but I think there was only like, we only really covered the Middle Ages in one lesson, really. There was not much, you know, 
in depth. And I probably, if I went back and listened to it now, I would regret some of the things I probably said back then because I just, you know, fed into the, the narrative of what's perceived. When you really stop and think about the men that we, we, we go to quickly, the Luther, the Calvins, and so forth, I mean, those men saw themselves as, you know, standing in a heritage that included those men. They, they were not writing in such a way of, of trying to disavow and disown all those people. I think one thing, just a couple of things that I would say, add, something that was said by Dr. Hogg, I think that's very helpful. He, he talked about the Anselm work, and I don't know how to pronounce the, the work, but he talked about, he starts it off with as a call to prayer, and that it was a worshipful experience is what Anselm is inviting people to. And I think that we need to think about church history or historical theology as a way in which it helps to deepen our worship of God, that we can look back through all of these periods and we see high moments, low moments. We see uh, men and how God used them greatly. We can also see their flaws. We can see their shortcomings. And yet we see how God preserves his people throughout all of this time. And so it should make us marvel at the grace of God in preserving and keeping his people and also to see how he uses vessels for his glory. And all of these vessels, whether it's us in our current context or those who have gone before us, we, we all have our warts. We all have our, our shortcomings. And yet the Lord is gracious to use us for his purpose. And I think if we can approach church history and historical theology to our people that way, as this is something that's important, and one reason it's important is it's to help us better worship and love and adore our God. As Baptists, we have an issue because for so many Baptists, we think that these things are, are out of bounds for us. That, that how, how can we, you know, how, how can a Baptist, for example, you know, read or, or use somebody like Anselm? You know, isn't he Catholic? I mean, how in the world can we use him? And, and I think if we look at somebody like C.H. Spurgeon, who everybody would know automatically love the Puritans, read the Puritans, cited the Puritans all the time. But some might be surprised not only to know how many times he cites church fathers, but somebody that he cites a lot is Bernard of Clairvaux. And there's actually a great paper that was written for, by a Southern Seminary student um, on Spurgeon's use of Bernard in his sermons and his writings and even in the hymnal that they use at the Metropolitan Tabernacle. Now, so here's a, a great particular Baptist who had no hesitations and saw the importance not only of Reformation figures and patristic figures, but even medieval figures. And Spurgeon is a great example in that sense of how we need to know all of church history and incorporate all of it, because where we are in 2021 is a result of all of these periods, sometimes for the worse, absolutely, but overall, I would say for the better in many ways. What was the original question again? So yeah, we're thinking about resources that you've found that have helped you in your understanding, or do you feel like you still are searching for those resources? Yeah, for me, um, the bulk of what I've found that's been helpful for me in, regarded, in regarding medieval theology um, has been works engaging with the history of biblical interpretation. So I think of, um, you know, some, I mean, someone like Craig Carter's book on interpreting scripture with the great tradition, right? He dives uh, well into um, what do all these medieval figures have to do with biblical interpretation, um, a kind of sister book to that is Keith Stanglin's um, Letter and Spirit, which is a, kind of like, like a historical theology version of what Craig was doing in his book, um, which is excellent. And it does a really great job, as Jake just kind of alluded to, of showing how um, not only the reformers, but every generation is standing upon the shoulders of those before them. So... And this has been helpful for me in realizing that the way we, if there's one area where I feel like the medievals often get a lot of uh, flack, it, it is in the area of interpretation. Because a lot of people, when you hear medieval, you immediately think of things like allegory. Um, 
And Stanglin does a really great job of showing how what is often seen as kind of being loose and fast with the text or just kind of like throwing out absolutely random opinions that have no biblical basis and kind of attaching that to the medieval theologians at large. He shows how they're actually grounding their interpretation in what they got from the patristics. And like I said before, often when we talk about the patristics, we talk merely in terms of Trinity and Christology. We don't often talk about how they interpreted the Bible. Um, And we don't often talk about um, their biblical theology, to use kind of like modern terms. And I think that is an area of um, great need in evangelicalism is to recover that. Um, so like, you know, this year Center for Baptist Renewal is having, is kind of published a reading list. And the first book on that list was, um, Irenaeus's apostolic preaching, which in essence is a biblical theology to a degree. It's kind of like a method for inter- biblical interpretation. And if you read figures like medieval figures like Aquinas or Gregory the Great, both of those guys explicitly draw upon people like Irenaeus. And so their biblical interpretation is not merely just kind of, yeah, being loose or fast or being novel. They're actually drawing upon how generations of believers before them were doing biblical interpretation and biblical theology. Um, And that helps put their interpretation in context and actually makes you realize, and this is kind of the point of Stanglin's book, that the medieval theologians weren't merely kind of theologians of allegory, but that what they saw as allegory really isn't that much different than what uh, moderns like to do in regards to, you know, I guess what we would call a like a Christocentric hermeneutic. You know, the kind of like tracing of themes and patterns across the canon of Scripture um, and tying that to the intent of the author the medievals were doing that same, the exact same thing. They were just probably doing it in a way that's often unfamiliar to us, um, in a way that uh, can make us uncomfortable because of some of the connections they're making, and some of that's legitimate. But um, Stanglin's book has been really helpful. I mean, kind of going back through that multiple times of just um, having a more honest assessment of where the medievals got um, the interpretation that they so often get flack for and realizing that that's honestly just a bad caricature. Um, And that's an area I think as we think about continuing to retrieve medieval theology, yeah, interpret the matter of interpretation is one that needs to be explicitly uh, pursued in the future. Yeah. I mean, I think if anyone even just picked up Thomas Aquinas's someone and start the first couple questions when he's explaining the method of interpretation i think us moderns are quickly going to say well that's not what i had thought they were doing that's something very different so that's that's very reasonable and acceptable and makes sense and i think uh hog mentioned a couple other resources on this point of interpretation and i can't remember i've got i've got one on my shelf yeah so there's a guy named levy who wrote a book on medieval interpretation. yeah that's it um, which is very good. Connor, where are you at in, in your understanding of medieval? Have, have you found resources that have been helpful or are you still searching? Yeah, I'm probably in the same, uh, book or book, uh, same boat as Jake. Uh, it's just, uh, I, I, my temptation often is I, I want to read what's coming out. You know, we we're bombarded with advertisements. Hey, uh, this is going to be, and I'd say that the 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 guys and gals in, in our modern times aren't great theologians and they're beneficial, but it's just like never before in history are, have we seen so much being published at, at the rate that we're getting. And it, Jake reminded me of, um, or or both Cody and Jake in this just this little podcast reminded me of that uh, the reading list from Baptist Renewal. Uh, in this in month two is on the incarnation. That whole introduction written by C.S. Lewis, probably worth the price of the book. He I think it's him that says for every modern 
author you read, modern volume you read, read at least one, maybe two, uh, of someone ancient or someone from patristics or medieval. I'm not exactly sure how he puts it, but I think for me, it really is just fighting that temptation to want to do what everybody else is doing and, and read what everybody else is commenting and posting on their social media. Hey, finally, I got this book from this guy who I, I hope follows me back on Twitter because I bought his book. Um, but it, it, so I, I think it's kind of being disciplined and principled of, Hey, we've got, we've talked about our bookends, our patristics and our reformation. Like let's, let's go to the middle of the book because there's a lifetime of doctrine, a lifetime of theology, a lifetime of helpful stuff there that, um, I, I admit I need to be, uh, more open to and more disciplined in, in, in doing it. So that's helpful. I think for me, my own journey in medieval theology, a lot of it has been driven by the literature and the philosophy community, just because it's so vast and important for them. I think of probably one of the most important books that I've read is Robert Pasnell's Metaphysical Themes. And it's like, I don't remember, it's got a date range from basically the medieval period. And he's, it's like 1200 pages, dense reading. So it's not for the faint of heart by any means, but it's it was probably one of the most helpful books for thinking through some of the medieval debates, some of the medieval questions, some of the medieval topics and medieval answers to a lot of the stuff that's going on there. So I, I recommend that book. I think that's really helpful. And in a sense, you got to read the primary sources. I think that's been echoed a good amount here. But really, there, there's no better way to get introduced to stuff like this without reading the primary sources. If you're going to do more academic stuff, obviously you need to engage the secondary sources. But if you're a local church member, or if you're wanting to lead your church in this, I think primary sources are probably your best bet when it comes to this. There's a lot of them that are are, are accessible. I mean, I mentioned Thomas, he's accessible. I, I've mentioned Anselm. I think he's accessible in some of his stuff. I, even if maybe you select sections from pieces of these different authors and you can work through them together. I think that's all very accessible. I'm thinking of, I'm trying to think of other resources and I was looking at both Greystone and Davenant. Davenant I know has had some, I think medieval courses in the past. I don't see any specifically dedicated to medieval stuff right now, but uh, I mean, I think their courses are pretty, pretty affordable. It's if you audit it, I think it's like 150. And if you actually want to get one of their like degree things, it's uh, full time is one ninety nine, part time is two ninety nine. I mean, I, I think that's fairly reasonable, uh, particularly if you're just interested. Like, hey, I just want to take one or two courses here or there. You can just audit it, and you can learn for your own good. Greystone, I know, I think they've had some stuff in the past on the medieval period. I don't see anything specifically addressing that now, but I would keep your eye there. I think uh, they're another place that's got a lot of unique, interesting things. I know it looks like they've got an upcoming module on philosophy for understanding Reformed theology. And I imagine um, that might touch some on on medieval theology. I mean, I I don't know. If it doesn't touch on medieval theology or philosophy, then it's probably not a course you should be taking if you're trying to understand philosophy for Reformed theology. Because I think... If you read most of the reformers, their big systematic theologies, I think you're going to find they're heavily reliant on on the medieval tradition for a lot of what's going on there. So maybe we ask, what are some, uh, and maybe we've addressed this to some degree, but I want to specifically call it out, some of the stumbling blocks that might occur. Besides, let's just bracket out like, hey, it's old and it might be hard to read. Like that, That's everything before last year for most, most people in your church. Like if it wasn't written this year, that's old and hard to read. You know, you could pick up something from the 1990s and they would think this is ancient. So uh, that objection, I think you can figure out how to overcome it yourself. What other objections or potential challenges might there be for engaging medieval theology for the life of the local church? Jordan, am I wrong? You guys got to correct me, but am I wrong that publishers, they're not... There's not very many publishers out there that are uh, reprinting 
a lot of these yeah resources. they're not repro- well that and then i think the only publishers who like have a vested interest in publishing in this area are probably the academic publishers that cost a hundred dollars a book right i just want to make sure i'm not the only one that notices them because if if there are you gotta you know send them my way so well we can... and that's that's part of the challenge right now is we don't have any medieval scholars who who are writing like we just don't have scholars which means we don't have books which means there's a dearth in your local church. So well, Jordan, oftentimes, you, you know, there's... Why don't you get on it? <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm podcasting, man. And I'm, I, uh, and I'm holding the kid in my lap while I do it, so... <laughs> Little Samson. It's the man. I think a big issue is just the difference in, like, how we just think about the world. You know, the medievals, and you see this... Like the reason their biblical interpretation was what it was, was because of how they understood reality. And our modern, often much more mechanized and naturalistic conceptions of reality, um, I think seriously hinder us from being able to understand what they're getting at in their biblical interpretation. Um, This is something that I've heard a lot from uh, someone like Mark Garcia, who's the president at Greystone. He talks us about this issue a lot in um, getting at how scripture really is not just describing reality, right? Or describing how the ancients thought about reality, but like scripture is actually commending reality to you, right? And the medievals, I would argue, did a, pretty good job of understanding that committed reality and then kind of like, you know, putting it in their own context, um, kind of repackaging it. And I think because um, we live in a very kind of postmodern, imminent, to use Charles Taylor's framing again, uh, we live in kind of like an imminent frame Right, we don't think enough about the transcendent. Um, that affects the way we think about reality, the way we think about the world, rea- world around us, which I think hinders the way that we end up reading the medievals and can cause that. Just like if you were to go into any other cultural context, you'd have serious issues understanding, you know, language, you know, how that other culture thinks about things. So I think that's kind of the tension we have is. Because we live in such a different culture, such a different age, it is hard. Even if the, like the 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 verbiage, the language itself from the medievals, like we've said before, is can be fairly accessible. Um, that's why it still can be such a struggle for modern day Christians who are trying to go back and read primary literature. So that's good, Connor. Connor, you mentioned something, and now now that you mentioned it, I, I'm gonna say something about it. You asked, why don't you create something? Well, I honestly, I have thought about creating a couple little course things on, on things related. So maybe that'll happen at some point in the next seven years. <laughs> do, you, do you need funding? Is that what this is about? I, I don't need funding to create something. I would create it of my own good heart and will in all likelihood. But um, So if, if that's something that maybe you listener you think would be useful, then let us know. And I would probably prioritize it more than I have. And secondly, I think another resource that we've just recently tried to kick off, and I want to mention it, is this call for papers that we have on the website for the, just the liberty of conscience in general. So I think originally the idea came about was like, hey, let's just get some more content for the website that will will hopefully generate some good conversations and good thinking on really the flexibility uh, of orthodoxy where the flexibility of of what where are where are the guardrails and where do we really need to clamp down on people and say no you can't believe that i i think you know in this in our current context it's just constant everything's a first tier matter of orthodoxy where if you disagree with me on the slightest thing then then you're out and i don't think that's what the confession imagined i don't think that's what the vast majority of Christian, the Christian tradition had hope for. So hopefully the idea was just, let's get more talking on this. But now, as there's been some uh, more positivity towards it than I expected, 
there's possibility that we may get a print version of this as well and make this kind of an annual thing. Pick a topic, uh, issue a call for papers, and then actually publish it on an annual basis to hopefully generate some more resources and, and thinking on this. And maybe the second issue could focus something on medieval theology and the life of the church and try to encourage some more thinking on that. So maybe that's a direction we go in the future. That's not, none, neither of those are going to give you resources right now. I know the resources I mentioned don't seem to have something right now. So there does seem to be just an overall lack. I think if you want to go get an education academically and want to pay for it, you can find the resources. Dr. Hogg mentioned going to Toronto, you know, university of Toronto, there's other even University of Tennessee actually has a, a good good program. Uh, I only commend that just because I know that grates a couple of guys' gears in in this <laughs> to mention Tennessee in any positive light. But there are good medieval programs out there. You're probably going to have to go. I mean, there's no like seminary program that's a, a good medieval program. I think there's good scholars of that period. I think of Southeastern and Ross Inman. He's he's strong in this medieval period, but. I mean, it's not like you can go there and get just a specific education on, I want to study the medievals. You can tailor your thesis and other types of things like that towards it, but your coursework isn't going to be focusing on that. So that said, it does seem like the only way you can really grow in this is reading and then online material. I think of Carl Truman, they put, Westminster has an old, a uh, series of lectures from him on the medieval church. Let's see here. If I Google it, it probably comes up. Yeah, I just Googled Carl Truman Medieval, and it's the first thing that comes up is the Gospel Coalition, and you just click that, and boom, there's like um, all the lectures are on here, as well as the resources that he that are recommended in this. So that that might be a good resource to go to. So you go through here, there's lectures just on introducing the period, the fathers and translations, Anselm. Uh, let's see what else we got. Lots of resources. Bernard of Clairvaux, uh, Eastern Orthodoxy, uh, the rise of school theology, predestination, mysticism, heresy, volunteerism. So, I mean, that that's a great place to start. I've listened to those probably three times now just because I felt like I didn't know where else to go. And that was the only thing I knew that was out there. So maybe that's something that uh, I'll link to that in the show notes so that you guys have access to that. It's on the Gospel Coalition. And it looks, I mean, this this looks really fresh and really nice the way they've put this together. So I say that that's a good place to start. That's free, available on the internet. Just listen to them and um, start there. Jake, I, I don't, I don't want to completely talk over you because I don't think you've had an opportunity to, to answer some of the questions recently. So did you have any thoughts or things that you wanted to share? No, as I said, this is not my area of expertise, so I'm just enjoying listening and learning. But I did want to share, I, I remember, and I just sent it to you, Jordan, if you want to upload it. I thought that this was available, and it is. The Reformed Baptist Seminary that's based out of California mm-hmm. did a couple of years ago a series um, of lectures. I think Dr. Michael Haken did most of them on the medieval church. And I think there's 23 um, videos. So there's I'm just looking at there's a lecture on the rise of the papacy, um, mm-hmm. spirituality of the period, and and on Wycliffe, and on Huss and some others. So that might be and Dr. Haken is just one of the best lecturers oh, around. Yeah. And um and so and it also can show that you know. You can be a Baptist and, and, and know these things, and it's important. I think something that I would—maybe you talked about a challenge earlier about how do we um, minister to our, our churches and to help people see the importance. And something that was said in the podcast about Anselm that I thought was very fascinating, and, and I, I think maybe it, it goes back to showing how history is more— uh, complicated slash nuanced than we sometimes want to uh, acknowledge was he said something about how Anselm's work and he may have mentioned also an Aquinas work I can't remember but he talked about how heavily saturated they were with scripture and I think most people probably in Protestant evangelical churches when you think about the Middle Ages you probably think of 
there really wasn't a whole lot of work with the Bible going on. It, it was just a lot of more of speculative theology detached from Scripture. And there's certainly now, you know, we want to make clear, Sola Scriptura is an important part of the Reformation movement. But I do think we it's helpful for us to realize that a lot of these theologians in the medieval period, we need to be careful not to make it sound like as if they didn't really use the Bible or they were detached from Scripture. And I think a lot of our people, that may be what they, they think. You know, the Bible really didn't get dis- rediscovered or discovered until 1517 and, and the Reformation. And that might be one reason there is a shying away from do we even want to read or, or, or look at these people? So I think that's something we need to do a better job of seeing that um, certainly there was speculative stuff that was, you know, was weird and out of bounds. Certainly that existed. But there's a lot more um, scripture there than maybe we realize. And so that's that's something we need to be proactive about, that these were men, many of them who, who did care about the scriptures, who did care about the word of God, and that that was a foundational part of how they did theology. Yeah, that, that's absolutely right, Jake. I, I think there are caricatures that abound in this. I think the, the obvious example is Thomas Aquinas, and that's probably just partly because that's the only medieval most people know of. But he has massive biblical commentaries. It's not as if he's just sitting here pontificating on, on the works of Aristotle alone. He's engaging the scriptural text at a deep level. And the reality is he quotes the Bible more than any other source far more than Aristotle. And that's just, there are people out there who think Thomas is doing something different. And that's just not the case. The medievals are not trying to do that. David Hogg mentioned Anselm. His stuff is just bathed in prayer. He Hogg was like, it's as if he's entering, you're entering a prayer room when you're reading Anselm. And that's truly what he's doing. That's, I mean, as, as he mentioned, he, he would have had the Psalms memorized. He would have heard them chanted, uh, you know, like every week, all of them, 150 of them. And these people are soaked in scripture far more than most of us are. So it's, it's yeah, a and, fa- and something unfair and, caricature. And somebody that I think most people that would identify as a Calvinist or, or reform today, a lot of it could be attributed to the influence and the work of R.C. Sproul and Ligonier. And who did R.C. Sproul say was probably the most important Christian theologian? He argued that it was Aquinas. Now, if R.C. Sproul is saying that about a medieval figure, then that should kind of be instructive for us. And he, for a long time, I would pull something up real quick to check myself, make sure I was right. Um, For a long time, he was one of the very few people in Reformed evangelical circles that said Aquinas is to be appreciated. Um, and, and so I think that's grown over the years, and I think that should be instructive to us as well. Most everybody, you know, respects and applauds Dr. Sproul and the influence that he had. Well, there, there's a, if somebody that's a hero we consider really put a medieval theologian as maybe the core, most important theologian in the history of the church, then that probably should kind of send off signals that, hey, maybe this is a period we don't need to overlook. We need to give some attention to yeah, that's good. And, and you mentioned this Michael Harry Haken series of lectures from Reformed Baptist Seminary. I just Googled it. It looks like that's an, part of an actual course that they have. They do have two of the um, lectures online available for free. So I can link to that as well. And it seems that their tuition and stuff is relatively affordable. So if that's something you're looking for, maybe that's a course you try to audit or maybe... If you want to do more with them, you could you could do that. I don't know. So uh, there, there seems to be some resources that exist out there, but we need more. So uh, I think there are probably going to be more as, as more interest grows in this area. It seems that, you know, for lack of a better term, it's just as things get popular, publishers are like, oh, hey, I can actually sell books on this topic, so let me do it. So in a vain sense, there's probably going to be more in this area, which I think is probably a good thing. I I want to unearth the riches that are found within every corner of the Christian tradition and not leave any of it uncovered. There's so much to be found and so much that has been forgotten, unfortunately, and I hope to see it recovered in due time. 
I mean, here's an idea, and, and, and somebody should run with the Banner of Truth has a little book called Meet the Puritans. And I think it's eight or ten chapters, and it's on a, a Puritan, and there's a short biography and why they're important. And there's like a, a section from one of their writings that the author thought was maybe the most profound or important work that they authored. And then there's also for the resources. Somebody should do that for the Middle Ages, the medieval period, and say, you know, meet 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 these guys. Here's 10 of the most important and do something similar to that. And I think that would be a tremendous resource yeah. for the layman in the church who doesn't really have any exposure and it, you know, whets the appetite, you know, about, yeah. okay, and, and maybe out of those 10, you know, there's one that just really, you know, you're drawn to, and, and then you'd start doing some digging. That's that's how this stuff works. There is some truth to that. There is some truth to the fact that you just got to figure out how things work and learn how to disseminate that information in a way that people actually are going to have access to it. Um but anyway, so I, I think this has been a good discussion, a helpful discussion, interesting discussion. I think my takeaway is I, I want to promote and resource more medieval theology because I think that's probably an area that's sorely lacking in our own churches and find a way to uh, create resources that are helpful and that are accessible for people. So I don't know if you guys have any closing thoughts or anything um, to end with. I just encourage people to go check out the Waldensians from the Middle Ages. That was the Middle Age version of the Baptist at that time. So those are people you need to get familiar with. I do remember that from my training. So, and a few other groups. Uh, that's good. I, I have no idea how to recover from that. Uh, you just let, say amen, brother, and close in prayer. So that's what you do. You know, I didn't grow up in a landmarkist church, so I don't know all the 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 ways to handle this. Do I? I yeah. So we'll just we're just gonna end on that note, I guess. We're gonna have to close up here. So everybody's been listening. We encourage you if you think of things that you would like to learn more of that you would you're interested in that you think maybe, hey, I just don't know a lot about it, but I'd love to learn more, you can let us know those topics too, and I'd be happy to go find an expert in that area and to have someone talk to that. I know I've got... Uh, Thomas Williams is going to come on and talk about John Dunn Scotus in the future. I think that's going to be a fascinating discussion. Thomas Williams is one of the foremost experts on Scotus, so I think that'll be a really helpful discussion, introduce some people to him. But I think that's one of the things that I like doing is, hey, tell me a topic that you're interested in, and I'll go find somebody that's an expert. And if I don't know the expert, I will ask an expert who knows the experts so that we can have good conversations and learn more about the various topics. So anyway, we thank you for tuning in. This is, has been the only analytic Baptist and confessional podcast on the planet. And we'll talk to you guys soon. And uh, enjoy the rest of your days that you're listening to this. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get three-pound rolls of juicy 80% lean ground beef for $3.49 a pound with a digital coupon. Then get select varieties of flavorful Powerade, Body Armor Super Drink, or Arizona Tea for 77 cents each, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger today. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.